looking at verse 28. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 18, starting with verse 28. We're going to, uh, we're going to finish out the chapter. Now, basically what happened the last time is we saw the first three trials. Uh, Jesus was tried by the religious leadership. And today we're going to look at the second three trials, which is really him being tried by the world. It's going to be Pontius Pilate, and then Herod, and then Pontius Pilate again. And it's kind of ironic, because if you look at the three trials, if you walk really strong with the Lord, and you say you have a relationship with God, and you do, you may get opposition from both of those, believe it or not. Well, sure, the world, you know, you're standing in the way of humanistic progress, but uh, sometimes don't be surprised if you're being persecuted by the religious system, okay? And I've made a lot of personal applications uh, because Jesus is our example. As we go through these trials, as we go through these difficulties, uh, we have to look at how Jesus handled things and really try to take that for ourselves. But one thing that really has to be understood is that Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was a victor. Some look at the situation and they, they have pity and it's, they think it's pathetic. Maybe some in the world. But remember, this was the plan. His whole desire was to go to the cross for you and for me so he could die for our sins. So those sins could be atoned for once and for all. Even our future sins, future from now that we're going to commit. But appearance is very important and things are not always as they appear. Uh, reminds me of the rookie cop who was dispatched to a really bad car crash. Then he's the first one on the scene, and the cars are mangled, and he's starting to panic. And from his perspective and appearance, it looks like the driver's covered with blood. So he starts to get on the radio. He says, I need backup. I need EMS. I need a supervisor. I need the traffic bureau. Send everybody. <laughs> and as he starts to get closer to the car, cautiously, there's a windshield. There's a mess on the windshield. And he comes to the driver, and he gets to the driver's side, and he goes, sir, how bad are you hurt? And the guy looks at the cop, and he goes, well, I'm not hurt at all, but this pizza sure made a mess. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that I ever did that, okay? Just saying. So we're going to start with verse 28. It says, Then they lead, led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but they, that they might eat the Passover. These are the religious leaders that's being spoken of. So in verse 28, we see that after the three religious trials, they delivered Jesus to Pontius Pilate for his fourth trial. Now, I want to go into a little bit of history, because it's going to come back. And especially for those of you who have unbelieving friends, maybe they're skeptics. Uh, maybe you go to college with some. Maybe you, at your job, you know, they, they are skeptic. Well, I'm going to really weave this really nice with secular history. And you're going to see that the Bible predates the secular history, but secular history confirms this miraculous, you know, uh, atoning death on the cross. So check this out. So let's start. Uh, Pontius Pilate was the fifth Roman prefect since Caponius, since Herod Archelaus ruled over Judea. Right? There was a, a, a switch at some point where he was a bad leader, they removed him, and they put direct Roman control in there. It's all history. Pontius Pilate reigned from A.D. 26 through A.D. 36. In 1961, the Pilate Stone was found in the Roman theater of Caesarea, an inscription. So there was proof of that in 61. 
Uh, we know that Pilate, his name actually means closely pressed. And we'll see how that bears out in this moment in, in his life. Tiberius Caesar is still on the throne in Rome. He's still on the throne in Rome. And Herod Antipater is still leading over Galilee. So we're going to come back to that. The religious leaders are very concerned that they might be defiled by walking into a Gentile's home and that they, their ceremonial purity would preclude them from eating the Passover. So they don't want to go into this Gentile's quarters, but they have no problem condemning an innocent person to death. See that religious hypocrisy there. There was a very dark time in the church's history where hundreds of thousands were killed by their own records and their own archives, but they still maintained a strict adherence to their rituals, religious hypocrisy. On an individual level, for you and I today, I think there's a lesson in here that we don't behave vilely towards other and, and hurt others and then just think because we go to church and we adhere to some of the church's standards that we're okay. It doesn't work like that. And that really is a turnoff to the world. And that's why we teach relationship. Because the closer we get to our Lord, the, the less likely we are to do these types of things. There's a whole bunch of ironies in this section. Religious leaders desired to eat God's Passover. Oh, they really wanted to partake of that Passover meal. However, they were killing God's true Passover or trying to kill. They thought they were standing up for God, but at the same time they were trying to kill God. So it's very ironic what was happening here. And even today in some of these religious crimes against Christians, a lot of it is done in the name of religious people, thinking they're doing God a favor by beheading and burning down uh, villages. Like, God would want this? I created all of mankind so you guys could destroy each other? But this is their idea. This is what they think. It's their warped thinking. Historically, however, Pontius Pilate had a very poor relationship with Tiberius Caesar and also with the Jewish leaders. And I don't want to get too much into it. I, I find it fascinating, but... Um, uh, Pontius Pilate actually threw his lot in, I believe, with Sejanus, who was later killed by Tiberius because of a, a revolt or what he considered was a, a means to take him off the throne. And there was some problems with, with Pontius Pilate, and the whole crucifixion is right around that, that time period. So he was already recalled to Rome. He was already on notice. But the Jewish leaders, he despised them. However, they weren't a good example of religious men anyway. They weren't a good exa example of spirituality. They did a horrible job of witnessing to the unsaved world. So there was this friction between Pilate and the religious leaders, this tenuous relationship. And you can see it bear out as we read the scripture. Again, this is all secular history. Unfortunately, both of them were at, at odds with God. Neither one of them did his will. Verse 29, it says, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews, the Jewish leadership, said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus, even while he was alive, you could have died by many different methods. You zealots could have killed you. Could have had your throat slit, you could have been stoned to death, you could have been crucified. Jesus was very specific in the manner of death that would, that would over, overtake him or that he would submit to, uh, better yet. So we're going to go into these. 
But what happens here is when you take the charges together, okay, and, and I've done this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I read them all, I've, I've put them all together, there's, there's uh, Bibles that you can read that has them in chronological order, but when you put everything together, what you find is that the Jews, the Jewish leadership came to Pilate with sort of like religious charges, and Pilate doesn't care about that stuff. This is the Roman government. Deal with them according to your laws. But what they did was shrewdly, because they weren't getting anywhere, they changed the charges to civil, uh, civil secular charges, which now had to get his attention because it was an offense to Rome. And let's look at these charges. Again, Luke 23 was really big in some of these charges here and John 18. So there's a few things. Number one, they said that Jesus perverted the nation. Now, I have to stop for a moment because in our area in 2013, to say pervert or perverting has a different sexual connotation. But all this meant was a twisting, you know, a turning. Um, and, and that's basically what, what they're saying. He's, he's perverting, he's twisting the nation. All these people are going after him. However, the Bible said, let's look at the truth in each one of these charges. You look at the prophets, look at God's word. God's word already said that the nation was perverted and that his people specifically had a bend towards perversion, right? It's a twisted and adulterous generation. The second charge was that he was forbidding taxes to be paid to Caesar. Well, what's the truth? The truth is that he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That inscription, that coin has Caesar's head on it. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, but give to God what God deserves as people of faith. The third charge was that he was trying to make himself a king, implying opposition to Caesar. What was the truth? The truth is that he was a king, but not of Rome. He didn't come to be a political messiah. Now here's the irony, and this is how Satan, especially when Satan deals with liars, liars speak Satan's native tongue. What Satan does is he completely turns things around. If you've got a good person and a bad person, what he's very good at doing is making the good person look bad and the bad person look good. Okay? Here's the irony. If Jesus came and said, I'm a king, I'm a political messiah, hey, Jewish leadership, rally behind me, we're going to take out Rome, they would have loved it. That's why they rejected him, because they were looking for physical deliverance. So you see the irony here. They're accusing him of making himself a king to overtake Caesar. But in reality, if he did do that, he would have won their support. Do you see how lies can get in and start getting twisted? Satan is the master at 180 degree twists. There's one scripture that I really like, Isaiah 5.20. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 180 degrees, not 360. 360 is completely turning around and facing the same direction. 180 is that half arc where you're facing the exact opposite direction. He goes on. Woe to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who put bitterness for sweet and sweet for bitterness. You see that 180 degree twist. And the last charge, the fourth charge, is that he was stirring up the people with his teaching. Well, yes, he was stirring up the people, but he was trying to have them to be revived, spiritual, a regeneration of the soul. He didn't really care what they did politically. He wanted them to be changed from the inside out. So he was stirring him up, but not in the way of an insurrectionist. 
Let's look at the irony again. We're going to find out in a few moments that it's, do you want Jesus to be released or the insurrectionist? Here's the guy who really stirs up the people and tries them to overtake Rome. And what does he do? What do they pick? Well, crucify Jesus. We'll take Barabbas. So there's the irony in all this. If they did have a resurre- or an insurrectionist in Jesus, they would have followed him. So these guys are definitely, when Jesus says, you know, you speak the native tongue of your father, the devil, because this is what they did. Now, in Matthew's gospel, while the religious leaders are carrying on, Pilate asks Jesus if he would address the charges, and Jesus says nothing. Imagine that. They're just shouting at him, and they're hurling insults, and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. And this is the first time that Pilate ever meets Jesus. No doubt he's heard about him. And Pilate marvels, it says in Matthew's gospel. What do you do when somebody lies about you? And we've all experienced this. What about at your job? And every employee thinks something about you and it's not true. What do you do? Well, sometimes we have to follow what Jesus did. And you know what? You've got to give it up to God. Hey, could we explain ourselves if we're confronted? Yes. But really, what do you do? Rope them all up together, tie them up and say, you will listen to me? You can't put out all those fires. It's not possible to do. I heard an awesome quote, and I want to share this with you. It says, never argue with an idiot. They will bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. (laughs) I just thought that was great. Sometimes, though, as a leader, there is a balance when you're tasked to protect others. You know, what did Jesus do in the garden? He said, if you seek me, remember, to the arresting party, outnumbered, weapons. If you seek me, then let these go their way. He stood up for his men. He stood up for the disciples. And when Peter cut off the ear of of Malchus, he healed his ear, destroying the evidence. Let these guys go. Take me. So sometimes when we're tasked, whether it be a parent or a pastor or some type of authority or leadership position, we need to protect those under us that we're tasked to protect. And these are great applications for our personal lives. Actually, I, was, I actually had to work on Wednesday night, so um, I got the CD for Pastor Paul's message on Wednesday, which was Psalms 55 through 59, and it was awesome. When the calumny, when these charges are hurled against you, what do you do? This was David dealing with this, crying out to the Lord, help me out here. Fantastic. So it happened to David. It happened to Jesus. It happened to me, and it'll happen to you if it already hasn't happened. Some, for some reason, I, I, something came to my mind. It was the Salem witch trials, and I quickly went over to the computer and did some research. And I found that all these women were murdered over the charges of being witches. And it all came down to one teenage girl. She was the one doing most of the accusations, and eventually the townspeople were like, we're losing our female population here. This is insane. This has to stop. But there was one person... One person. At the, and, and what could they do? They were tried by a court of law. So keep that in mind, because, again, it'll happen to you at some point. But here's what's amazing. There was three scriptures that had to be fulfilled, and this is the part where if you have friends who are skeptics, that I just urge you to take some notes here. Three scriptures that had to be fulfilled in the manner that our Lord Jesus was to be, was to be killed in, in great detail. Number one, Jesus had to be crucified not have his throat slit, 
not be stoned to death, not in the manner of mob violence. He had to be crucified by the Romans. Scripture reference is Psalm 22. And Zechariah 12, they will look upon me whom they have pierced, indicating a thrusting through of the body. Didn't happen in stoning, really didn't even happen in any other way of death. Uh, but it happened in crucifixion. So the religious leaders had to get the Romans, and they didn't even realize they were doing Satan's bidding, but in the big picture, they were fulfilling Scripture. Wrap your mind around that one. Number two, Jesus had to be lifted up from the earth in death. He had to be lifted up from the earth, and then I will draw all peoples unto myself. That's in Scripture, John 12, 32. Jesus said, I have to be lifted up. And he was lifted up. Study Roman crucifixion. Again, by the hand of Rome. The third thing that had to happen, this is the most fascinating. And this is where history is really entangled and, and really supports what the scripture says. And this is an old scripture. I mean, Psalm 22 was circa 1,000 years B.C. This one is Genesis 49.10, which was really old, really deep into the Old Testament. And it said that the Jewish nation had to have their right of capital punishment, the scepter, removed. And then Shalom, or the the Messiah, would be in the picture. Every Jewish believer knows this. Every Jewish believer teacher knows this scripture. So what happened? What happened? Well, when the the, uh, Babylonians took over Israel, you know, they took over the southern kingdom, you know, when the... Uh, the Persians, when the Greeks, when the Romans. What do these countries do? They take over another country back then. They don't have the administrative um, monster needed to just kind of run day-to-day operations of the country. So what they do is they say, okay, Jewish people, we we took you over, lay down your arms, we we own you, pay us taxes, do what we say. But you can run day-to-day operations, civil stuff, you know, policing of your own people. And you see modern wars, a lot of times that happens as well. They take over, we're the conquering country, you're a vassal state, but you can do day-to-day operations. So this happened all throughout these successive uh, uh, empires that took over the Jewish people. However, something changed in the Roman uh, Empire. What happened was there was a man named Herod Archelaus who was a very evil ruler. He just um, had no compassion. He would slaughter people and not care about it. So the Jewish people revolted against him, and they were really tired of him. Ironically, the Herods were part Jewish but they sold themselves out for the world. And it was so bad, they had to remove Herod Archelaus, and right around 6 AD, they put a man named Caponius in. He was a Roman prefect. He was the first. Pilate was the fifth. Now, what something very significant happened is they said to the Jewish people, you know what, we're going to micromanage how you deal with day-to-day operations, civilian life, etc. You have your Sanhedrin, but basically, we decide who dies and who lives. What that was, was removing their scepter-ship. That is, that is Gen- Genesis 49.10, deep, deep into the Old Testament. So this is what's going on here. The Jews before could have had him crucified, but now they had to go through the Roman prefect. Fascinating, isn't it? All that stuff wrapped up in one verse in Genesis 49.10. So these three things happen. So the forcefulness of the religious leaders dumping this problem onto Pontius Pilate is entirely significant. God's word always prevails. You know, when the Jewish people heard Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Haggai, they probably was like, wow, that's an outlandish prophecy. 
And some of them were even accused of not being prophets of God because they were so outlandish. But a hundred years later, a thousand years later, two thousand years later, they all were fulfilled in God's timing. So God's word will always prevail. Verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, calling Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself on this, or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So Pilate is questioning Jesus. I guess you could say he mildly mildly interrogates him. And in verse 35, he asks him, what have you done? You know, if you're in my presence, you must have done something wrong. The old adage where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, not in this case. These were spurious charges. In verse 36, Jesus says, you know, hey, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. Basically, Pilate, I'm in control, you're not. If this was my kingdom then I wouldn't be bound right now, I wouldn't be submitting to you, and your soldiers would be toast. That's the urban translation. Now, Pilate is intrigued by Jesus. You can see this. This guy's confused. I mean, he doesn't like the Jewish leadership, but he knows that if he's harsh again, and he has to go back to Rome, it's not going to be good for his political career, and maybe his life. But he really can't stand these guys. But he really wants, seems to want justice done, and Jesus intrigues him. Why? Because you, you could imagine, every time... A prisoner would come before Pilate. They probably got down and prostrated themselves. They probably held on to his feet and said, please, please, pardon me. Day after day, time after time, and maybe he got just numb to it. Jesus comes in here and he's cool as can be. He's in control of the situation. He's not begging for his life. And it gets even better. I mean, when he says, Pilate says, I have the power to release you. He goes, the power, you wouldn't have it unless it came directly from God. So this is what's going on here. But he says that his kingdom, you know, his, um, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different world. Now, what we have to understand here too is, and 1 John 2, 15 through 17 is really good about Christians not becoming worldly. Because there is something happening right now as we speak. We, we have a world that we live in. It's the temporal world. It's the flesh and blood. It's the electricity. It's the light. It's the wood. It's our reality. But that world is sinking. That world, very clearly, you look at the earthquakes, the storms, you look at the wars, you look at everything that the Bible says, that world is starting to sink. But there's another world rising in prominence, and it's God's kingdom. I'm amazed at how many Christians don't believe in the second coming. We say it in, in the Lord's Prayer. Like kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So this is something we look forward to because Jesus told us to look forward to. 
And there's another world that as believers, we have to realize we're part of that world when we're born again. We're not part of this one anymore. This one's sinking. It's like those movies, like those drama or these adventure movies where, you know, the, the earth is starting to open up and, and the person can make a decision. You know, the pot of gold or the bag of money is, is falling into the crevice and they can really take that chance of grabbing that money or hanging on to the, the, the stable part of the land that's going to give them life. And, and you see in a lot of these movies, like Indiana Jones, a person goes for the gold and psh, they get buried. And you never see them again. Brothers and sisters, this morning, what world are you from? The Roman Christians, the Romans. What do we have left of the Roman Empire? An empire that dwarfs the United States a thousand years. If you look at Rome in its extent, we're only, what, about 250 years? And we're, we're destroying ourselves from within. The Roman world lasted a long time. We're babies compared to the Romans. But what's left of the Romans? The, the fires of Vesture will burn forever. Anyone know where there's any fires of Vesture anywhere? Of their false gods and their temples? All we have now is marbles and ruins and stones and artifacts and a few writings and a few shields and a few helmets. That's all we have left of the Roman Empire, but it was going to last forever. We are Christians before we're Americans. Just keep that in mind. We're Christians before we're earth dwellers. We're people of God before we are people in this world. We're just passing through here. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Brothers and sisters, is our kingdom of this world or is it not of this world? What makes you happy? Is it recreation? Is it something you might be thinking about that you want to do as the weather gets warmer and, and you know, I can't wait to get out of church because I've got to do this? Is it from cruise to vacation to fun to excitement? Is that what makes us happy? Or do the things of God make us happy? Because I've got to tell you, when, when this world is sinking and it's, it's, it's gone, I want to be on the other one. I want to be on the one that's stable and that's going to last forever. My kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37, Jesus basically says to him, Pilate, you're correct in saying that I'm a king. That's why I entered this world. Now, that's fascinating because I was born in 1967. I don't remember anything before then. You know, I don't know what I was. I don't know if I was just a thought in God's mind and he put together my framework in my mother's womb, put a soul in there, spirit, whatever. I don't know because I don't remember anything before like maybe four or five years old. And even those memories are sketchy. But what Jesus is saying, I existed before this. I came into this world. I always was. Micah 5, 2, you know, the babe born in Bethlehem, right? From you, there will be the ruler. Do we ever realize that in that scripture, it says he will be from everlasting, from eternity, from Iones, Kai Iones, when you translate it to Greek? Jesus was from eternity. He just came into this world. He always existed beforehand. Isaiah 7, uh, 7 14, the, the virgin will be with child. He came into this world to save us. His kingdom is not of this world. Furthermore, he has a truth campaign that's going on. Truth campaign. What does he say? That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Are we of the truth? Are we listening to his voice? In John 10, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. Do we hear it loud and clear? My, um, was it last year, my wife and I went to visit relatives in Ohio and we were coming back on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and we thought we were making good time until everything just stopped. And all you see is mountains, it's real pretty, and then a line of vehicles for miles. 
And like, what's going on here? So there was a sign that said, tune in to 10.60 a.m. to find out details. And there was yellow lights that were flashing. So of course I tuned it in and I found out what was going on. But I had to be on the right wavelength to pick up the signal. I had to be on the right wavelength to find the truth. You know, to kind of put me at ease because I'm like, well, was it a fatal? Are we going to be here all night? This is miserable. But I, but I got some peace in the fact that, that they explained to me what was going on and eventually after about a half an hour, we were on our way again. And my son saying, were we ever going to get there? I mean, just all the questions. <laughs> my question to you this morning, are you tuning him in or are you tuning him out? As you read God's word, is it ministering to your soul? Is it water to refresh a thirsty soul? Or are you tuning him out? We've got to be on the right wavelength. All who, those who are of the truth hear his voice. What does that tell us? That this world is filled with lies. And Satan is the father of lies. And he loves to propagate that stuff. My question to you this morning is that, are you looking at this purely historical or are you getting the, the signal that the Lord's trying to send to you? In order to pick up a certain radio station, there's got to be a certain type of receiver with certain type of technology to actually pick it up and make intelligible sounds out of the wavelength that's coming through into that receiver. Verse 38. The last thing Pilate says before going outside is, what is truth? I think that's more rhetoric than a question. What is truth? And he goes outside and says, I find no fault in this man. You, you almost kind of got to, and some have done really, when they kind of do it in their artistic liberties and movies, you're like, oh yeah, I bet it could have happened that way. Jesus was getting too close to Pilate's heart. Pilate was too busy. He had problems. He had stress. He had some political things he had to work out. He had to provide for his family. And Jesus was speaking to him in a language that was starting to get too close to his heart. I believe that firmly. What is truth? And he walks outside. He had to maintain his composure, his comportment, his facade that he had to put on for all the rest of the Romans and the soldiers and the Praetorium guard, guard that was around him. Think about it. Pilate was interrogating Jesus, but Jesus was mildly and lovingly interrogating him. Here's the problem. Or here's the, well, I mean, this is what Jesus does. He does that today too. We're in the world. He wants to take us out of the world and show us things in the spiritual realm. He wants to open our eyes. But as Christians, let's not do this. Let's not take God's reality and try to cover it in our world. Remember that. I mean, I think that's always a struggle because we're, we're in this world. You know, we, we enjoy some of the pleasures of this world. But do we also enjoy more the things of the Lord? Let's not take Christianity, let's not take all the thing that God offers and pr try to slap our world and our way of life on top of it because it's not going to work. So let's just look at Pilate for a minute. Here's a man who had widely vacillating characteristics. He had a, an appearance of strength, but really inside I think he was weak and I think he was scared. He wanted to appear in control, but he really wasn't. He wanted to appear that he was concerned for justice, but he presided over the worst travesty of justice in all of human history. He thought he was trying Christ, but he really was being tried by Christ. And we'll see the climax of this when we get into chapter 19. Now, at some point, Pilate 
probably gleefully finds out that Jesus did these things. Again, you take all the Gospels together. He finds out Jesus did a lot of these things in Galilee, and he knows that, well, Herod Antipater rules Galilee, and it's a jurisdictional issue. So Herod take, or excuse me, Pilate takes Jesus and sends him, because Herod was also in Jerusalem at the time. Remember, it's the Passover feast, so they're close together geographically. So he sends Jesus to the fifth trial to see Herod. It's kind of funny where he's looking to pass the buck um, involving a jurisdictional issue. I can kind of smirk when I read this and relate in law enforcement when there's a, a car crash or some big mess that's on the border of two towns and you find out, the, my cops are laughing, you find out that it's not yours and it's theirs and you don't have to do any paperwork. Hey, I'll help you out all you want, but that's about all I have to do. So here's a jurisdictional issue where Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Whew, I got that off my plate. Unfortunately, Jesus comes back to him for his sake. So I want to read this to you. Luke 23, 8 through 12. Now when Herod saw Jesus, remember he's the one who also had John the Baptist killed. He was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, and he answered nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For before that they had been at enmity with each other. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Pilate or Herod sent a gift, you know, here, send them back to Pilate. I don't want to deal with them, and here's a gift just for his troubles. But they become friends at that point. They have some type of discussion. But this is typical of the world. They're looking for a miracle. Remember, Herod represents the world. He's got a little bit of religiosity in him, very faint, but he's really sold out for the world. Jesus doesn't do tricks for him. He doesn't do miracles. And he was really excited at first, and then he just becomes disappointed. And when he doesn't get what he wants, he has uh, Jesus mocked, and his, his soldiers probably abuse him. And then he sends him back to Pilate. But this is typical of the world. Well, show me something, Christian. If your God is real, well, have him come down right now, please. You don't rub the side of a bottle and God comes out. He does something for you, and then you send, oh, I'll believe now. We, we serve a sovereign God. We serve a holy God. We serve a mighty God. But this is sometimes what the world sees. But they'll look for miracles. They'll look for anything. You know, I, I, I saw Jesus' face in the clouds this morning, or I made a grilled cheese sandwich. This stuff is real. And, and I, I was done with the grilled cheese, and I flipped it over, and look, there's Jesus' beard and his mustache, and I can't eat the grilled cheese sandwich. Weird. There's got to be an element of faith in this. And you see this stuff on, on emails and Facebook, and, you know, it's no wonder sometimes that even the world thinks we're a little weird. You know, it's, it's about faith. It's about God's power in our life. It's about him changing us. That's what it's about. It isn't about all these little cheap parlor tricks. He wants a relationship with us. Jesus was on trial by Herod, but Herod was also on trial. He sold out his Jewish heritage for the world. But Jesus will go to the cross for the sins of Herod. Imagine that. Jesus keeps going to the cross for all these people that abuse him. And then, to make it even better, while he's on the cross, he says to the Father, as he's just suffering immensely in torture, he says, don't hold this sin against them. This one, let's just move that one aside. 
I, I don't even, it's not about me. And he dies for their sins. Last two verses for today. 39, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Here's the sixth trial. Pilate's got to try him again. He's, he's, he's got Jesus coming back to him. He's got to deal with the Jesus problem here. In Matthew 27, Pilate tries to, or Pilate frees Barabbas. Pilate's wife also sends a messenger to him and says, don't have anything to do with this Jesus. I've suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So again, I'm putting all the scriptures together. Pilate tries to dissuade the crowd, but a tumult is rising, and he wasn't prevailing. So, Pilate has no choice. He opened up the discussion. The people spoke. Now he has to release Barabbas. So his problems just keep getting compounded. Let's look at Barabbas for a minute. If we take all the scriptures together, he has along what we would call rap sheet. The guy's been in a system a few times. And he's also a murderer. And he's possibly a zealot. We would call him today a terrorist. He could probably slit a Roman's throat in a heartbeat and get away. Eventually he gets caught and they're going to kill him. And now he gets released. Surely, Pilate thought, these religious men would not want a terrorist free in their neighborhood. Think again. When you start to look at the scripture and you have questions in your mind and you really meditate on it, it makes sense. So why would, why would Pilate do that? They hated Jesus because this guy, the alternative, was horrific. But they, they said, release Barabbas. We'll take him into our neighborhood. The children of Israel in the Old Testament chose King Saul over God. Samuel was offended, but God said, it's not about you. They're rejecting me. They wanted a man to lead over them. The religious leaders chose Barabbas over Jesus. God's people sometimes don't make the right choices when it's God or somebody else. Because choosing God means direct implications in our lives. It means that we have to be responsible. It means that we may have to repent. It means we have to take personal responsibility. So release somebody else to us because the other alternative is I might have to be accountable to God. I just want to say this with, with, without emotion and, and not making fun. Okay, so let me just be clear when I start this. I was watching the whole ceremony about the choosing of the new pope. The black smoke, the white smoke, going up, you know, he's not in red anymore, he's wearing a white robe. And I saw the people, look at him, crying, convulsing, passing out. You know what's really sad? That still, still people are choosing a man to lead over them. I, I read an article that said, when the, other, when the last pope announced he was stepping down, the article said, who will lead the world's Catholics? Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. How do we know this guy's going to be a good guy? I mean, he seems like he does great work for the poor and all. But even those that call themselves God people are still looking for a man. In the Old Testament, they'd say, we want a king, we want a champion, we want somebody tall and good-looking, we want somebody to fight for us, we want somebody tangible. There's always, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not comparing, I'm, I'm, moving, I'm moving now into a different direction about choosing a man. I'm not equating any of these people with Barabbas. But I am saying that, are we as evangelicals, don't think I'm going to let us get a pass and move on, are we any better? 
What do we look for? Ever since I started going to a Calvary, I heard, well, Jim Carrey's going to become a Christian. Jane Fonda, they're in the closet. They're gonna... It never happened. We as evangelicals are also looking for a man. And we're now we're looking for ball players because we don't have a pope. So we're looking for an actor. Look at Mel Gibson. We're all, we're all excited about Mel Gibson. And then there's the drunk driving, and then the anti-Semitic remarks, and then the, the, the womanizing when he already was married. Well, that, that champion, what happened to him? He got defeated. And we had egg on our face. As evangelicals, are we still looking for a man? And don't put so much pressure on these ballplayers and celebrities. We should be praying for them. And I think, Tim Tebow, I like Tim Tebow. I think he's awesome. But don't put that much pressure on Tim Tebow. And second of all, Tim Tebow doesn't know what we do when we go home in our personal lives. Our champion needs to be Jesus Christ. We've got to stop putting men before the Lord Almighty. We have to, it's direct. I quoted Billy Rutledge before. He's a, a Calvary pastor in North Carolina, and he really knows how to bring it. I'm going to get him to come out here one of these, these Sundays, um, maybe sometime in the spring. But he even said, even within Calvary, I tell you, some of the Calvary pastors are annoyed with him. I'm not. We can't look in our own homes and clean our own closets. He said, oh, I, pastors say, well, I've got a surgeon in my fellowship. Well, I've got a, I've got a millionaire. I've got this. He's right. Are we looking for men to, to prop us up, to help us? We need to be looking directly to God. Let me tell you something, that's not easy to do because he's not tangible. We can't squeeze him. We, he doesn't give us audible answers uh, at times. So, so this is what we're dealing with. Jesus was on trial. Barabbas was free. And Barabbas probably thought that he was doing God a favor by killing all these Roman soldiers. But he was not. It's not what God wanted. He was a, he was a religious zealot is what he was. Barabbas was free from Rome, but he was also shackled to the penalties of his sin. Nevertheless, Jesus would go to the cross for Barabbas. I wonder if there was an exchange of looks when they released Barabbas. I wonder if he looked at Jesus with the robe and the, and the, the beatings and the black eye, and he probably looked at him and was like, pathetic. You know, you should be with me fighting these guys. It was this, this passive stuff. Barabbas was freed, but he was still chained to the shackles of his sin. whether we're talking about Pilate, Herod, or Barabbas. From the world standpoint, Jesus probably looked like a pathetic sight, a poor sap. But depending on where these men stood before they died on Jesus would depend on where they'd been for the last 2,000 years. Think about that. So how do we look at the Lord? Victorious or victim? Historical figure, good man, prophet, by the same token, what we believe about Jesus Christ will depend on where we stay for the next 2,000 years after our death and beyond and into eternity. If you're a skeptic, go back to the message again. Listen to it again. Take your secular history books and compare it with the scripture. And I defy you to find that God's word wasn't 100% accurate about Jesus Christ. I mean, before... Rome was even a nation, these scriptures were penned. Before crucifixion was a, a method of capital punishment, before it gained popularity, it spoke about it in the scripture. Please talk to me if you're a, a skeptic. Uh, the other thing I would suggest is Search for Messiah by Dr. Mark Eastman. He's a Jewish believer. He wrote an awesome book about 
you know, about Jesus as the Messiah. Don't be like Pilate. Pilate was stopped in his tracks. He was intrigued by the Lord, but you know what? He had a busy life. He had to cut Jesus off because he couldn't let his heart. Jesus was reaching into his heart and he was walking away. Don't be like Pilate. Don't be like the unbelieving world that doesn't stop too long because we're busy. Our lives are too busy. God is also reaching you through his word. If you don't know the Lord, he wants you. He's created you, but he's not going to overpower you. He's going to touch your soul, but he's not going to hold you down and force you. So if that's your desire this morning and you want to walk with him and you are seeing that the word is changing your heart, keep going with it. Keep reading. Keep listening. Pray for the first time. Just go up to and say, Lord, I'm by myself at home and I'm, I'm just the first time. I want to talk to you. I, I want you to be real in my life. Because what you believe about Jesus will determine where you spend your existence in all of eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the... just It's history, but it's, it's also powerful, Lord. It just evokes such strong feelings. And when you think about all the players who were involved and, and they were fighting so hard to get what they wanted, and Jesus was in complete control. He knew, he knew when to open his mouth and he knew when.